Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the show where America is the star and the American people. The United States Postal Service was established in 1792. It's hard to believe that a service that was created over two centuries ago is still used by everyone every day. What's even more shocking is that there was actually a lot of debate about whether there should even be a federal post office in the first place. Here's Daniel Piazza of the Smithsonian National Postal Museum with the story. The Post Office Department was created in 1792 with an act that President Washington signed into law that year. But it had antecedents going back to the early 18th century. The British Crown had established a post office in the colonies as early as the reign of Queen Anne. This was in 1711. And in those days, the post office was generally a contract that was farmed out to someone who paid the crown a fixed sum for the right to operate a post office and then got to keep the revenue. So the early colonial postmasters general in America actually bought their jobs. Benjamin Franklin becomes joint postmaster general in 1753 along with William Hunter. Franklin managed all of the post offices from Maryland North, 
while Hunter was in charge from Virginia to Georgia. We frequently hear about Franklin as being the first postmaster general of the United States, which he was, but it's less well known that he was also the last postmaster general under the British crown, and in fact he had a much longer postal career under the British than he ever did under the Americans. The Continental Congress, which formed during the Revolution and was the de facto government of the United States until 1789, formed a separate American post office in 1775 and appointed Franklin as the first postmaster general. For nearly 20 years, the post office had been authorized and reauthorized on a temporary basis, usually only until June of the following year. The founders were uncertain about creating a federal post office because in the years leading up to the revolution, the British post office had been used to spy on them. Loyalist postmasters in America and postal officials in England regularly opened the mail and reported on its contents. In other words, they functioned as spies. And so the founders disagreed on whether there should be a standing postal establishment in the new nation that they were setting up, and they debated the question for nearly 20 years. In the beginning, the post office was a rather small operation. It operated very differently from what we're used to now, with basically a post office in every town serving every community. It was largely along the eastern seaboard from Maine to Georgia, and there were only about five or six dozen post offices in the entire country, and mail was only carried from post office to post office. No postman came to your house with letters. You had to go to a post office to both send and pick up your mail. You had to just periodically go and inquire whether there was any mail for you, and if your mail was sitting there uncalled for for some time, the postmaster would actually advertise in the local newspaper, sometimes very long lists of people who had letters waiting for them. Letters were not paid for when they were mailed. The recipient paid for the letter. And so, because there was no home delivery, and because the system relied on the individual to come in and look for a letter, or respond to an advertisement that there was a letter waiting for them at the post office, a fairly large percentage of the mail went undelivered and therefore unpaid. So the post office department transported a lot of mail that it never got paid for. The Postal Act of 1792 comes about because the question of whether or not to have a permanent post office couldn't really be kicked down the road any further. The Constitution of 1789 had authorized the Congress to establish a post office, and the new Washington administration was in favor of it. One of the main reasons was, quite simply, the fact that the federal government needed money. The Constitution provided very few mechanisms by which the federal government could raise money. Really, there were only customs and excise duties and postage rates. Income tax doesn't come until much, much later. There are heavy debts left over from the Revolutionary War. The new Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, has a very aggressive plan for paying off that debt to establish the United States national credit. And a big factor in that is the excess revenue that's expected to come in from postage rates. Articles and pamphlets of the time regularly referred to postage rates as a tax. They considered it a tax. And any misgivings the founders had about how the post office might be misused were ultimately overcome by the fact that the government needed money badly. The post office department, as it was set up in 1792, had a dual nature. 
it was expected to make money for the federal government, to turn a profit that would help retire the Revolutionary War debts, and certainly not to cost the government anything. That's a goal which it sometimes achieved and sometimes didn't, but the expectation was there. But then it was also expected to operate like a public service, to contribute to the good of the nation, to educate the population through the circulation of literature and news. Both of these expectations were present from the very beginning. At different times, one or the other of them is pushed to the fore or emphasized by the party in political power, but the other half of the equation never goes away. In the late 18th and early 19th century, the bulk of the mail carried by the post office was not letters or birthday cards from grandma. The bulk of the mail consisted of newspapers. Right in the Postal Law of 1792, there's a carve-out for newspaper publishers. Very low postage rates are set for the carriage of newspapers, and that continued for well over a hundred years, right through the 19th century. And the reason for this was the idea that the post office should be a public service. What that meant in the early republic was that it should facilitate the spread of news. So publishers were allowed to send their newspapers to each other for free so that articles could circulate and be picked up and republished all over the country. The idea of a virtuous citizenry was accepted at the time, which meant in part that citizens, in order to participate in government and society, needed to be informed. The post office was the most efficient way that pamphlets, newspapers, political tracts and opinions could be exchanged all over the country. And what an interesting story. When we come back, more of how the post office came to be here on Our American Stories. Here at Our American Stories, we bring you inspiring stories of history, sports, business, faith, and love. Stories from a great and beautiful country that need to be told. But we can't do it without you. Our stories are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. If you love our stories in America like we do, please go to OurAmericanStories.com and click the donate button. Give a little, give a lot. Help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner. The rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Hi, I'm Antonia Blair. 
Blythe and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. And we return to Our American Stories and to the story of the United States Postal Service and how it all got started. Here's Daniel Piazza with more, picking up with how the Postal Service helped enable the expansion of just about every transportation network throughout our country. In the 19th century, the new country is expanding rapidly westward, expanding not only the number of post offices, but the network of post roads. By the 1840s, of course, they've got to figure out the logistics of getting mail across the continent into California. This brings some controversy because most of this is done through postal contracts, and there can be a lot of politics involved in government contracting. There's debate in the 1790s over, believe it or not, whether stagecoach companies should be used to carry the mail. Not because anybody objected to stagecoaches, But because, you know, who's going to get these contracts and who's going to control who gets these contracts? Eventually, the stagecoach lines do get contracts and those subsidies help to develop the road network. This repeats itself over and over again. In the 1830s and 40s, the post office becomes an early adopter of railroads and steamships to carry the mail. And those postal subsidies from contracts incentivized the rail and shipping lines to expand, to add new trackage and new routes. Postal contracts are a predictable, steady source of revenue for transportation companies that allows them to set a a kind of baseline on which they can expand their networks. The same thing happens in the early 20th century with civil aviation after the First World War. The first airlines are forming in the late 19-teens and 20s, The first regular airmail routes in the United States were between Washington and New York. A couple of years later, the route included Boston. And within the space of 10 years, the airmail network made it all the way across the continent. And then passengers and cargo followed in the wake of the mail. 
So really, postal subsidies have enabled the expansion of just about every important transportation network in the country since the 18th century. Before the postage stamp was introduced, postage rates in the United States had become very complicated. Rates were based on a tangle of factors that resembled algebraic equations, including the number of sheets of paper that were in your letter, whether it had enclosures, how far the letter was traveling, and so on. It was a headache both for users of the postal system and for postal clerks who have a very elaborate tiered system of rates that they have to apply to each letter individually. Postage rates of 40 cents, 50 cents, or more on a letter were not uncommon, and that's a lot of money in the 1830s and 40s. This leads to pressure for postal reform. People are reforming all sorts of things. The first women's rights movements, abolitionism, temperance laws, and the like. And although it's all but forgotten today, one of the biggest reform movements of all was the postal reform movement, led by people who felt that Simplifying the postage rates and giving people more equal access to postal service would also help all of the other reform movements that were underway to flourish. Feminist literature, abolitionist tracts, notices of temperance meetings could circulate more easily and cheaply. So, in a sense, postal reform is the meta-reform that makes a number of other movements possible. Postage stamps were invented in 1840 in Great Britain. It was a one-penny stamp that's known to collectors everywhere as the Penny Black because it was printed in black ink and shows the profile of Queen Victoria. The first U.S. postage stamps were issued in 1847. The introduction of the postage stamp, apart from being a cultural phenomenon that includes the artistry and imagery of stamps and the whole field of stamp collecting, it represents a complete change in the postal business model. Until the 1840s, most letters were carried through the postal system unpaid. Most letters were paid for when they were picked up at the post office. Some people actually went and sorted through their mail and decided which letters they wanted to take and pay for and which letters they were going to leave. A high percentage of letters became what are known as dead letters and were destroyed undelivered and unpaid for. The idea of postage stamps is to simplify the whole system by requiring that letters be prepaid before they enter the system. This allowed the postage rates to be drastically reduced and led to an explosion in the number of letters carried by the post office. And you can buy these little things called postage stamps, which have stored value. They're like IOUs or coupons you buy from the post office and redeem it at any time. The idea of a postal savings or banking system actually began overseas and was adopted by the United States rather late. The United States started postal savings in 1911. This is the high tide of unrestricted immigration to the United States. You've got millions of immigrants coming into the United States. Many of them do not have bank accounts. They do not have a lot of money and banks are very much for the wealthy in this period. And so the idea is that the postal service could provide a sort of parallel banking system for small depositors. And actually, postage stamps come into play here, too, because postal saving stamps are issued so that users can save small sums, pennies, nickels, quarters, in the form of a saving stamp 
that can then be saved up to make larger deposits or even to buy government savings bonds. There were a number of crises in the post office department in the 1960s related to uh, wages, understaffing, and poor working conditions in some post offices, especially in large cities. Added to this, the volume of mail was steadily increasing. This resulted in a number of strikes in various places, primarily in New York and uh, Chicago, but there were smaller strikes and work stoppages, slowdowns, and other sorts of industrial action in other places as well. And then there were other places where the mail system simply stopped functioning. The National Guard was called in to sort and deliver the mail in many places, and the mail was being rerouted from cities experiencing strikes to smaller post offices. So the need to reform the post office department, which really had not at that point undergone any major changes since the great reform of the 1840s, 120 years in the past at that point, uh, the need became pretty evident. What ends up happening is the Postal Reorganization Act, and the old post office department is actually abolished replaced with a new United States Postal Service, which comes into existence on July 1st, 1971. This is the creation of the organization that we have now, a quasi-independent government corporation, basically wholly owned by the federal government, but not receiving any appropriations and empowered to some extent to make its own business decisions about how it's going to run its organization and and manage its operations. I think that the post office is still a major facet of American life for a few reasons. One is that it has continually adapted to change and consumers' needs. Sometimes it was in the lead, sometimes it lagged a little behind, but it always evolved. And in some ways, our needs haven't changed since the 1790s. We have certain human needs for communication, for exchange of information and ideas, for exchange of business correspondence and packages. The Postal Service still fulfills these needs for the most people at the lowest price. It has lots of competitors, particularly in the package business, but nearly all of them have lots of places they can't or won't deliver to because it's not cost-effective. The Postal Service has to deliver to everybody, and that universality represents a lot of what the Post Office offers that private competitors don't. And a terrific job on the production and storytelling by our own Madison Derricott, and a special thanks to Daniel Piazza of the Smithsonian National Postal Museum. And we learned that a lot hasn't changed in America about some of the early debates. Some were skeptical about forming a National Postal Service for the usual reasons. The British should use it as a spying mechanism. Too much centralization of power. We get how to get stuff from A to B. And in the end, the Continental Congress and the Constitution, well, the Constitution itself authorizes the formation of the Postal Service. And George Washington wanted it because in the end, they needed a way to make money. The story of how the U.S. Postal Service came to be, here on Our American Stories.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 